Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh God, right now, we pray you would talk to us. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the hope to which you've called us, the riches, the glorious riches of our inheritance in being part of your people, and the immeasurable power for everybody that believes tonight. We thank you in advance. In Christ's name, amen. All of us, every one of us, in our hearts, has a longing to um, appreciate, celebrate, participate in cultures other than our own. That's been implanted in us by the God who made us. And as Ryan reminded us, that glorious climax where God gathers together people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, a cross-cultural church, that echo from heaven is still heard. But yet, each one of us as well has an opposite longing. The Bible would say it's because of sin. And that is the temptation to nurse the longing to see our culture as superior and be suspicious of other cultures and want to have the upper hand. And so the question is, how do we empower the first and conquer the second? How do we empower the first and conquer the second? Now, there there are lots of practical things you could do, right? Travel, study abroad, enjoy the food, the drink, the films of other cultures. Watch Anthony Bourdain, if that's you. Celebrate Black History Month. Various things, practical things that we can do. We can seek to be humble. We can seek to listen better. We can seek to be self-aware and self-critical of our culture. But we need something actually more profound than that. Something deeper something that is found in unity with the God who created us after his likeness. And that is to be reconciled to him so we might be reconciled to one another. This is what the gospel teaches. 
The book of Ephesians says, speaking of Jew and Gentile, that God might reconcile us both to him in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What he's saying is that through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and his sacrificial death for every believer of every tribe, tongue, and nation, the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. Every culture finds itself failing to love as they should, failing to to practice justice as they should, failing to love across culture as they should. We find ourselves before the cross of Christ in need of his grace. And when we find ourselves in that place, reconciled to God through his son, the hostility begins to die. And it's the outworking of that vision and plan that causes Jesus in this passage to wonder and warn. Now we've been studying how Jesus' Bible, the Hebrew Scriptures, impacted him. How it's formed his mind and his vision. And tonight we're going to look at how Jesus' Bible gave him a vision of the cross-cultural people of God. In the way that he wonders and warns. So first, the wonder of the cross-cultural church. Uh, I just have gotten done with 10 days of travel. And, um, and uh, the middle part of that was speaking to a group of pastors, mid-Atlantic pastors and missionaries. And we were at lunch, uh, uh, sitting around, and one of the pastors said... Uh, to another, would you please, uh, to a missionary, would you please share what you shared with me? So we all sort of gave him our attention. And he began to talk. His work was mostly among Muslims, uh, Syrian refugees. He was back for a short time. And he began to unfold and talk about the unprecedented hunger and thirst that's happening among this people group. He said, just my ministry alone among university students has doubled in two years. And I can't even keep up with all the other people's ministries. They're doubling and exploding too. These long-awaited prayers, these long hunger and thirst, a breakthrough moment. And that's what Jesus is celebrating here. A breakthrough moment. As a non-Jewish, a Gentile Roman military officer expresses his faith. Now the occasion for this, as you heard read, as his servant, who's like a son to him, is sick. Centurions during their 20-year service weren't allowed to get married. So this is all the family has. He's sick. And Luke tells us he's a friend of the Jewish community. He helped build their synagogue. He appeals to them. They appeal to Jesus. And then uh, as he's coming toward Jesus... He says, listen, you don't need to come a step further. Your authority and ability, you can just speak the word. You can speak the word. Now, Jesus is impressed with this guy. He's not impressed with him because he's a friend to Jewish people. He's not impressed with him because he's generous. He's not impressed with him because he's a first century pluralist. He's impressed with him because of his faith. Because of his trust. Jesus is greeting among his own family members and his countrymen was at best lukewarm, conditional, 
And for many, it was just downright hostile. But here he has this pagan who's never been raised to know the revelation of the one God expressing utter confidence in his authority and his power. Jesus is delighted, but I, I want to I say that I don't think that is why he's astounded. And the reason we know that is because his reference to his Bible The reason that Jesus is astounded is he's astounded in the outworking of an ancient promise that God would save all nations. Given through Abraham. That's why he's full of wonder. It's remarkable. Now, almost the first word that Matthew uses in his gospel is Abraham. And because Matthew is zealous, he's writing to a primarily Jewish audience, he's zealous for them to connect the dots and see the relationship between belief in Jesus and the long story that went before. The faith that was once handed over once forever. The tradition of the faith. He wants them to know that. I finished my time on my traveling with my annual pastor's gathering. These are Six pastors I've known since seminary. We share our hearts. We share our lives. And for the last several years, we've gone to Texas. The hill country of Texas. And can I tell you, it was cold in Texas. (laughs) You Texas people, Texas can get cold. I mean, it was bitter cold. We're on this ranch and the air is blowing every which way. But my favorite part is driving in. Uh, We drive in and we're driving along this river. And, you know, it's wider. And, of course, the the, the more we drive, we're coming up to the property. It's getting a little bit narrower. And then as we get onto the property, it really gets narrower. It becomes more of a stream or a brook. And then we're on the property proper right there behind the house. There's a large pool with these giant trees in it. And that is the spring that feeds the river. That's the headwaters of the river. And this is what Matthew's saying. Matthew is wanting to highlight Jesus, saying Jesus is the headwater of the river. The river that went all the way back. We trailed it to him. And the river that goes forward. And you heard it as, this, as we uh, had the Old Testament reading. A promise that goes way back to Abraham. God comes to Abraham in chapter 12. Abraham is fatherless. Abraham just wants a kid. It's not a small thing, right? He and his wife are aching for a child. But God goes in one foot. Now he's going to have to wait a long time, but God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to make you a father of many nations. And to illustrate this, at one point he takes him out and shows him all the stars. And then with his descendants, his son and his grandson, he shows them. He said, it'll be like all the sand on the seashore. This is what I'm going to do for you. But what was the purpose of that? The purpose wasn't so that Abraham would just get a child because he trusted God. Because this people group was to be a blessing to all the nations. That was the purpose. That was their mission way back that God had commissioned Abraham with. 
The genealogy in Matthew starts with Abraham and ends with Jesus. Jesus being the doorway. And so Jesus would say, listen, before Abraham was, I am. Identifying himself with being the second person of the Christian Godhead, the Son of God, Abraham's Lord. And it's Abraham's trust in that Lord that made him righteous, acceptable, and loving to God. It wasn't any good work that he had done. And the, and the scene that really shows that is when Isaac, Abraham's one and only son, was to be sacrificed because sin takes life. And what happens? God provides an animal, a ram in the thicket, and that animal becomes the substitutionary atonement for Abraham, which he then relies on Jesus, the Lamb of God, who will take away the sin of the world. Abraham's resting in faith and grace was that idea of Christ, as you have heard expressed already. It's through the mediation, it's through the substitution, it's through God coming in the flesh and living the life I should have lived and dying the death I should have lived once and for all, Jesus Christ, and for all that trust in him, they find themselves righteous in the sight of God. Listen to how the New Testament connects these dots. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. That means you're not justified with your volunteerism and your nonprofitism and how good of a neighbor you are or that you can put a sign in your yard and say, we love everybody the best here. You're not justified by that. I'm not trying to make light of loving all different people the best. I'm just saying, but Washington is a town where we celebrate do-gooders. And he's saying, you are not saved by being a do-gooder, no one will be justified before God. Christ redeemed us from the curse, the judgment of the law. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the non-Jews by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham in saying... In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Are you starting to see why Jesus was excited? Why Jesus was full of wonder? Because the fruition of the gospel that every believer, whatever race, ethnicity, social class, child, male, female, that believes and rests on this one are heirs of Abraham. The children of Abraham. I grew up in a family of no faith. And I came to faith um, when I was a teenager through the witness of a teacher. Thank you, teachers. I mean, not just wait for doing your job. Like if he didn't do his job, I wouldn't have thought much of him. But he did a great job and he loved me. And um, after I became a Christian, about 15 years later, my sister became a Christian. We both got married. We both had children. And then just this year, a grandchild was, a child was born 
to one of our kids. And I just, it just hit me for some reason. I was like, wow, that's the third generation. The third generation of God's promise. I can see it happening. I was this pagan teenage kid. I didn't know anything. I was like, I'm off to the side. Why would God come and find me and speak to me? And now there's, there's a legacy. Jesus marvels over the fact that the plan is unfolding. The centurion is a token of that. This is what he marvels over. And how much more do we have to marvel over, right? We get the full view of the world, the work that's going on, whether it be Syria, whether it be Turkey, whether it be Peru, whether it be Bangkok, or even our little place here, what God is doing. I've told you before that when I came here to help with the planting of the church, we were probably 97% white. Um, The church planter was white. That's me, by the way. And um, our leadership team, primarily. And all I knew to do was to just pray. I was like, Lord, I, I know that we're not right now reflecting the church that you have put in our brains and our minds and our city. And I had some well-meaning people that tried to console me and said, and some of them were like city pastors that I really respected and just said, said, you know, Glenn, you just need to accept, like, you're not going to be that church. And I, you know, uh, there was just something in me. I was like, nope, nah. <laughs> I got to at least pray. That's all I knew to do. I prayed that God would send people. And he began to send people. He sent Duke. He sent that lady right over there. He sent Russ. He sent lay leaders of color and white lay leaders that were impassioned by this vision. And then we just kept praying. And he just kept sending people. And now, believe it or not, we are one of the models of cross-cultural ministry in this denomination. Our network is. We have the most diverse pastoral staff in this denomination. And you may be saying, that ain't come much in the PCA. But still, (laughs) my point is this. I would have never imagined if you would have taken me in 2003 and fast-forwarded me that I would have been like, But why should I have been surprised? And as much as I long to see more just like you do, you know, it's inch by inch. We long to grow in cross-cultural love. We long to be more hospitable. All of us longing to say, help me to, to value the culture you've made in me, but also lay it down, right? All this growth that we desire. My confidence is not in us. It's not in our gifted leadership team. I am confident to you, confident before you, that we will only progress in this. That the momentum is that way. You know why? Well, because of Jesus' Bible. Jesus tells me that in this passage. He mentions east and the west. Let me read what he quotes from Isaiah. I love this passage. Fear not, for I am with you. Now, that moment, we might think, oh, this is, you know, because I'm anxious about my job or my life. And, all, and there's appropriate stuff for that. But this is a fear not, I am with you about the mission. 
Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who was called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Hallelujah. That's why. Because Jesus won't relent. His spirit will say, do not withhold, deliver over, I will gather. And that's why I have confidence. That's why you have confidence or should have confidence that a cross-cultural church will prevail. But also Jesus brings warning that we have to be tuned to. He says the sons of the kingdom, and that was a Semitic term for national Israel, will lose their claim to the kingdom unless they follow the centurion's example of faith. That's what he's saying. Now, it's important here that I add some context and clarity. And I want to borrow, again, from biblical imagery that the Apostle Paul gave with God's people being a tree. Now, when God planted that tree, that tree were Jewish believers, Jewish faith in God. That tree and its trunk was made up of Abraham and his family and the 12 tribes and then Moses and the nation Israel and the apostles and the prophets and the and Pentecost, which was cross-cultural Jewish people, the tree trunk. And then. Even back in the Old Testament, there was a trickling in of non-Jews, a trickling in people that were attracted to the gospel. But the real rushing of the river or the growing of the tree uh, through the branches would be through the Apostles Paul ministry where Gentiles begin to flood, right? Flood into the church. But Paul has to, Paul has to remind the Gentiles, don't think you replaced the tree. Don't think that. You're there because of the tree. You're a branch that's been engrafted in. But as well, he had to warn those in Israel, which Jesus gives the warning of, don't presume the tree is there because of your culture and tradition. It's a tree of faith. And so, he warns Israel of this idea of the culture and the tradition supplanting faith. It it would sort of be like someone that grows up uh, in a uh, Christian home that had generations and generations of Christians in it, and they believe that the reason why God accepts them is because of that tradition, not because of living faith. Same thing. Point is this. Our culture can be a threat to faith. All of us have to recognize that. That's what he's saying here. And it can happen in different ways. You know, one hand, we celebrate the work of missionaries. I've met too many people that have been touched by missionaries that came from the West. Praise God for their work. But in some cases, right, more than the gospel was imported. (laughs) Western culture was imported. I remember the first time I went overseas was to Africa. This is in 1988. And, you know, I didn't grow up... like, study abroad did not exist. What, study abroad was like, go to the other side of Pittsburgh. You know, uh, it, it didn't. And I also went to a music school. They wouldn't have paid for anything. Anyway, but the point is this. So it's the first time I go over, and uh, 
We worship at the church in Nairobi, and it just feels like a Western church. The clothes, the music, the liturgy, the hymns, it's just that way. And then we move out to the villages, and it's completely different. The dress, the colors, the songs, the liturgy. One had been enculturated. The other was a Christian expression of their culture. It also happens, I think, in subtle ways that culture can be brought in. Um, and, And I will say this happens with churches that have a wonderful heart for global missions. But, are, but really not, not seen much of a vision for a cross-cultural congregation. So I went to a church uh, in the heart of Boston. This church was so great for my faith. Um, heart of Boston, and they were on fire for missions. That was their legacy. The biggest thing all year was their missions conference. They poured money and money into missions. I got to go overseas twice because of their generosity. Wonderful vision, but the congregation itself was nearly completely white. There was no, in the heart of Boston, there was no cross-cultural impulse or vision or message. It can be subtle. We can, we can do one thing and miss the other thing, right? It's not a unique thing. In the early church, what we were going was the culture be raised up to the point, right? And we would, we would see this um, in American churches, white American churches, where uh, if they did welcome minorities into their congregation, you had to basically just assimilate, right? You have to become white in your culture to make it. And so when this goes unchecked, and it isn't, put under the light of the gospel, you get what happened in the first century where there were those, some, not all, some in the Jewish community that were saying, this is true faith, Jesus plus Jewish culture and tradition. And so this is, this is the part that we have to be sober about. It's possible to cling to Jesus and cling to your culture. And there you have a false gospel. A false gospel. That's what the Apostle Paul battled over. And so we need Jesus and the sword of the Spirit and his word to come in and divide out, give us insight between our cultural convictions and the gospel. And the gospel is not acultural. This is the beauty of the gospel. Jesus came as an enculturated person, affirming that we're made in that humanity. And it's a tricky thing for all of us, right? Where am I, you know, where, where am I sort of clinging to them? Where's this not my faith, but it's my culture? Because they grow up so close together. But that's why we need one another. I said that when God sent uh, brothers and sisters of color to lay along me, he didn't send just co-laborers, he sent guides. I've learned so much. I have so far to go. So much. And we give back and forth to one another. It might be the gift that you give as a white person, as some, a person of color, is like, wow, I just never knew white people thought that way in the best way. It's this cross-cultural work that God has to do in our midst. Whatever form idolatry can take, and take the idolatry of 
Cultural idolatry can hide in race, social status, political views, lots of stuff. So I went back to this classic missions text when I first learned about the promise of Abraham. This was way back in early 1990. I was like, what was that book? I remember reading it. I went to it, and I found this quote. I thought this was pretty prophetic for 1987. The gospel condemns all our petty parochialism and our narrow nationalism, our racial pride, condescending paternalism, and arrogant imperialism. Now, this isn't like uh, the Washington Post, right? This isn't whatever you think, man, that's a, this is like a missions book from 19, an evangelical missions book from 1987. How dare we adopt a hostile or scornful or even indifferent attitude to any person of another color or culture if our God is the God of all the families of the earth? We need to become global Christians with a global vision for we have a global God. So may God help us never to forget his now 4,000-year-old 4, promise to Abraham. By you and your descendants, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. If it's true globally, it's got to be true locally. Right? It's got to be here. We take here and we go out. Uh, I, one of the examples of that, I just say quickly... Uh, one of our elders had this insight when we were starting our global missions. Because every global mission thing I'd ever been on is, right, you form a team together and you go, like, do stuff. And he just said, you know, imagine that reverse. Someone from another culture comes here and the first thing you're going to say is, like, would you paint my bookshelves for me? I'm, I'm not saying the service isn't bad, but he was saying, wouldn't you want, instead of say, I'd love to show you my culture. I'd love you to sit at my table. I'd love to like start a relationship with you. I could probably hire some other people to do that stuff better than you. And so we started off our global missions with the idea it wasn't going to be primarily so we could feel good about serving. We were going to go and we were going to say, teach us. We want to be brothers and sisters with you. If, they have some, if, we, if we can help out some way, we're glad to do it. But that was just a vision I didn't think of and it came from one of our elders who had thought that way. But more than the warning, I need to end here, is the joy, right? Warning can only get you so far. Fear can only get you so far. When the gospel really begins to work in your life, it's the joy. Getting in on Jesus' joy. For the joy set before him, he shed his blood for his pan-ethnic bride. And uh, for that, one more reference he gives us, and that's Isaiah 25 on this mountain, when he brings up the idea of the feast, the table, this beautiful imagery. Now, it just turns out that one of our own has recently written a book, Alicia Aikens, uh, and uh, don't need to buy this book. It's been ministering to me. Um, but Alicia is um, focusing on Isaiah 25 and reflecting on this, and it's just such a perfect way to end this because it was naming what Jesus is saying, the, 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 the vision of it, the benefit of it. Um, the author says that the believers are fed like a royal priest. You know, the, 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 the priest got, 
the, the best cut goes to the priest because it goes to God. But all of us royal priests get that fat, that marrow, that well-aged wine. But talking about this table that Jesus referred to, the table captured the essence of restoration. It acted as a foil to everything dreadful, mirroring the spiritual truths of restoration on a physical level. Wine, grain and oil, then comfort and meat, fat and joy were all seen as part of the same redemptive act. And then looking ahead. Ahead we see replenishment and satisfaction, and behind we see its purchase. We cling to his promises. We put our trust in him. From the ends of the earth, songs of praise and glory to the righteous one were heard from the lips of the returned. We look forward to singing as they sang, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is what we're doing together, friends. Every week. We're waiting for you, Lord. We're waiting for you to create the world that we know that's coming. A beautiful community, as Erwin would say. This is our vision. May God make it so. Father, we thank you for Jesus' joy. We thank you for our centurion brother that we'll see one day. We thank you for this amazing plan that's unfolded from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And we thank you for the profound hope it brings to a fractured world that's one step forward and eight steps back when it comes to trying to heal our nations. Thank you for the gospel. Would you give us grace as we struggle?